Uh, so, good morning. Uh, like Greg said, my name's Paul. I'm an intern here. I can tell my mic is on, so that's a good start. I'm glad to be with you this morning as we wrap up our short sermon series through the book of Malachi. Malachi is a great book to begin the year with because it's got so much to teach us about spiritual renewal. Uh, in the last few weeks, we've heard God's call on our lives to pursue renewal in our relationship with Him, renewal in our relationship with one another, and renewal in our relationship with our possessions. Um, this is true of me, even in all of my um, years of disappointing myself, but often the new year is a time of all this excitement and energy about all the things that are going to be different, all the new beginnings and fresh starts. Uh, but it's about this time of year, late January, when a lot of our aspirations and resolutions start to fall apart, right? The costs are so high, the benefits seem so few, and so your passion collapses into exhaustion and discouragement, and you start to ask yourself, this whole renewal project, is it even worth it? Uh, we feel this way about how often we go to the gym or how many books we're wanting to read or something like this, but we also feel this way about our spiritual lives, don't we? We get exhausted. We get discouraged. We get beat down. We hear God calling us to yield everything that we have to Him, everything that we are, to give it to Him for His purposes. And we feel inspired for a few days or a few hours but pretty soon, if we're honest, we just feel like throwing in the towel. That's how I feel, at least, a lot of the time. Thankfully, God's not surprised by our fickleness and our discouragement, and so he speaks to us about it in his word. So I invite you to turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. If you have the Pew Bibles, it's page 1490. In any case, it's like the last or second to last page of the Old Testament. We're all the way at the end of the Old Testament. And we'll be looking at Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 13 and reading all the way to chapter 4, verse 3. This is God's word. You've said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You've said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. If we're going to experience renewal in our relationships with God, with each other, with our possessions and the things in our world, it's going to be a lot of work. Jesus doesn't call us 
just to give him a little bit of our lives. He calls us to give to him everything we have, and he promises that it will be costly. The payoff is often going to seem pretty distant. So the question that we need to answer for ourselves is this. How do we persevere in seeking spiritual renewal, obedience to God, when it starts to seem, by all accounts, like maybe it's not worth it after all? We'll explore God's answer to this question from this passage in three parts. First, we'll look at the problem a little bit more clearly. Then we'll see the solution. And then finally, we'll look briefly at the difference that that makes for you and me. So if we're going to persevere in seeking spiritual renewal, the first thing we need to do, and God's Word always helps us to do this, is reckon honestly with the problem that we face. Uh, Let's zoom out for a second. Pastor Sam did a really good job of reviewing the history of uh, the, the nation of Israel in the context of the book of Malachi last week, but I'm going to do it again. The people of Israel, they're, they're God's chosen people whom he had, had rescued from slavery in the land of Egypt, brought them into the promised land, but then due to their persistent unfaithfulness to God and his covenant, they had been sent out of their homeland and into exile. But though God warned them again and again about this, even though they persisted in their rebellion, He did not give up on them. He made these promises, these great promises of a glorious restoration when the nation and indeed all the nations of the earth would be brought back together and God's glory would shine in them. And eventually he did make a way for a lot of the exiles to return back to their homeland. Hopes were high. The temple was rebuilt. Worship was reinstituted. But soon uh, it became clear that things weren't turning out exactly as the people had hoped. The nation was still small, weak, politically oppressed, and this glorious kingdom of God that would draw all the nations of the earth into the Lord's marvelous light had yet to appear in its power and glory and strength. So the people were complaining. And that's what we hear. That's where this passage starts. Whether these were words that they had said to one another or that were merely in their hearts, the Lord knew, and so he quotes back to them, What they said, they said, it's futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? Now we call the arrogant blessed, the evildoers prosper, and those who challenge God escape, right? Serving the Lord was supposed to make us blessed, to give us peace and prosperity, right? I mean, Psalm 1, blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. In all that he does, He prospers. But that's not what things look like. Serving the Lord just brings sadness, right? We're walking about in mourning before the Lord Almighty. And those who disobey God, the people who don't care, the arrogant, the evildoers, they're the blessed ones. They're the prospering ones. Nothing's the way it's supposed to be. The basic observation here, I think, rings all too true. The wicked do prosper. And doing the right thing doesn't always pay off. I think of the biblical story of Job, right? Job was a blameless man who feared the Lord. He did what was right. And for that very reason, if you remember the story, his life is just thrown into meltdown. All of his uh, wealth and possessions are stolen from him by thieves and disasters. His children all perish in one great tragedy, and his own body starts to fall apart so that he's sitting on the ground in the ash heap, scraping away at his excruciating sores with pottery shards, just wishing he was dead. So Job 
the man who feared the Lord, the blameless man, said this out of his agony. He said, why do the wicked live, reach old age, grow mighty in power? They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol. Job had spent years faithfully, honestly, sincerely serving the Lord. And is this how God repaid him? Right? Few of us, I think, have had crises as acute as Job's. But as we consider for ourselves, each of us, in those specific areas of our lives where we feel God calling us to spiritual renewal, as we consider the costliness of that obedience, we all find ourselves asking the same question that the people in, to whom Malachi was prophesying ask. Is it really worth it? It's a, it's a very universal question, but it's also a very dangerous one. For example, uh, maybe you want to pray more to experience more depth and intimacy in your relationship with God. It's a great thing to want, right? So you're praying, and you're praying, um, but nothing seems to feel very different. Instead of new heights of spiritual joy and comfort, you find yourself feeling just as anxious or sad or lonely as you did a month ago. So the feelings of disappointment and discouragement are so understandable, but the danger is that they'll start to harden and calcify into bitterness and cynicism toward God, right? If God's real, he sure doesn't seem to care about me, and I wonder if it's really even worth my time. Or maybe you're seeking renewal in a friendship or in your marriage uh, where you've been really, really deeply hurt and you've started to, to grow cold and bitter. And so you, just, you decide to start forgiving this person out of obedience to Christ and even asking for forgiveness yourself. But it's not long before you realize that this person seems quite content to keep doing the very same things that have been wounding you. And you start to lose heart and go back to that place of bitterness. And even more, you, you can find yourself beginning to scoff at God and his instructions about how to love indiscriminately. Frankly, they start to feel naive. Or maybe, like we talked about last week, you've been working hard to give generously from your financial resources in obedience to God, but it just hurts so much to see that friend or that family member around the holidays who has the clothes or the car or the house or the vacation that you wish you had, that you, maybe you could have had, but that you said no to for the sake of God and his kingdom. You start asking the question, what did we gain? from trying to obey God. What's even the point? In all these cases, if we're not careful, this is what I want to try to show, that we can start to do the math on God. We start to calculate and quantify and compare and try to figure out for ourselves if God is really worth our total devotion, worth our lives and our hearts and all of our energy and resources. Like Keith said a few weeks ago, we can start to treat God transactionally. What did we gain? If we follow the direction that that question would lead us, we've walked off the road of faith and love, and we really are in dangerous territory. So what we need is a solution, and that's exactly what this passage gives us. Here we see that the solution that we need in our just depths of spiritual discouragement and exhaustion is a renewal of hope, a renewal of hope. And when we say hope, this is, um, always bears repeating. In the Bible, hope is not an optimistic outlook on life um, or some kind of wishful thinking. Often in English, when we say hope, we actually mean the opposite of no. 
Like, I don't know if the weather will be nice this week, but I hope it will be. Um, in the Bible, that's not the way it is at all. Biblical hope is a concrete confidence in the radiant future that God has promised to us. And in this passage, as in many parts of the Bible, this uh, future goes by the name of the day of the Lord. This is the final day. This is the end of history that Malachi has in view, that the Lord would have his people to keep their eyes on when God will finally make everything right. As we see that the day has two sides to it, you can see if you still have your Bibles open or if you can remember from the reading. On the one hand, this is a day of judgment. It's like a burning furnace that will burn up the evildoers and leave their ashes scattered across the ground. These are very powerful images, but what they help us to do is to see how this promised day of the Lord is the answer to the grievance of our hearts and the grievance of the people of Israel, right? The arrogant are blessed and the evildoers prosper. Those same, same terms are used later in this passage as the Lord says, no, you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. The upside-downness of our moral experience as deeply embedded as it seems to be in the very structure of our world, it will be turned right side up again. We all know it. The wicked prosper. The weak and vulnerable are tread upon and abused. We need justice. And the good news of the day of the Lord is that the only um, person in the universe who is capable and competent to fully and finally right all the wrongs of the universe, God himself, is so willing to do that. And indeed, he will. And that's why, on the other hand, the day of the Lord is a day of salvation. Let me just read chapter 4, verse 2 again. I just love this verse so much. Uh, But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. This is what we need. Our hope, biblical hope, is not in the idea that everyone who ever took advantage of us at any point in our life will finally get what's coming to them in the end. That would be to misread this passage. Our hope is that God's kingdom of joy and peace and justice and healing will triumph over everything else in our um, messed up experience of this world and that we who come to him in faith have a, a share and inheritance in that kingdom. You will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. It's one of my favorite images of just the sheer childlike freedom and joy that God offers to us in Jesus. Uh, The newer NIV translates this as, you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Frolic. I love that. Human beings renewed and restored, fully alive, alive to God, alive to one another, alive to this world that he's made. That is our hope. And I hope you can see how in this passage, a a renewal of that hope meets us right in that place of asking the question, what was the point of this all again? We need a renewal of this kind of gospel hope if we're going to keep going in a very costly and discouraging work of spiritual renewal right now, today, in the present. It's always the way it is, isn't it, right? Um, One of my favorite scenes in The Lord of the Rings, which is an admittedly overused resource for sermon illustrations. Okay, just hang with me. Uh, One of my favorite scenes in the movies, it's right at the end of the second one. And uh, Frodo and Sam are walking through the woods. 
venturing ever onward toward the darkness of Mordor. And uh, Sam says this to Frodo. She says, I wonder if we'll ever be put into songs or tales. I wonder if people will ever say, let's hear about Frodo in the ring. And they'll say, yes, it's one of my favorite stories. Frodo was really courageous, wasn't he, Dad? Yes, my boy, the most famousest of hobbits, and that's saying a lot. And they go back and forth like this, right? But what's so powerful is that it's right here in the deepest darkness, on the edge of despair and uncertainty, on the edge of giving up, that Frodo and Sam can get a glimpse into what could be, what might be, on the other side, after the war is over, when peace has returned to the land. See, you and I already know how how the story, The Lord of the Rings, goes, probably. But even when we hear that, it's so powerful because we can see this ray of light, this ray of hope that's breaking into their hearts. They're discouraged, exhausted, beat down, ready to give up hearts. It gives them the courage to keep going, to persevere. Our futures, too, for each of us, are shrouded in so much mystery and uncertainty. Um, Macy and I don't even know where we're going to live six months from now. <laughs> we have, just, there's so little that we know about our lives um, and where our road will lead us. But we do know some things. We do know how the war will end. And we do know that justice and peace will return to God's creation. And we know that we will leap like calves with joy in the presence of God. That's the important thing to know if you're going to go about this Christian life thing. That's the promise of the gospel. In fact, that's the perspective that we need. Not the cold, quantifying, calculating, is this worth it kind of perspective, objectively sitting off to the side and trying to, you know, measure the, the, uh, the value of following God. No, this is the warm, radiant, life-giving perspective of hope in the day of the Lord. And as Christians... Uh, we can understand this even more clearly, I think, than Malachi's original audience because we can look back and see how God's glorious future has already broken into our world in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, The great hymn writer Charles Wesley recognized this when he used our sermon passage today in what's become one of the most famous Christmas hymns. Did you recognize this? Uh, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of of righteousness, S-U-N, son of righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. That's Jesus. That's what the day of the Lord is all about. So what, what does this mean for us? Well, it doesn't mean that we uh, can now treat God like a kind of um, heavenly vending machine to dispense eternal rewards when we insert our efforts at spiritual renewal. So just, just to see this as recalibrating the moral calculations Uh, and and leaving us stuck in this transactional attitude to God, that would be missing the point. This passage is something way better. The the generosity and grace and goodness of God revealed in this vision of hope actually lifts us up, frees us up out of this self-centered quest that you and I experience probably every single day of our life to try to maximize the benefits and minimize the costs. It lifts us out of that and sets us down in a disposition of love and gratitude and wonder and awe and reverence toward this God himself, this God of of hope and mercy. And this disposition is what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. 
So if, if you have your Bibles open still, I just want you to look with me, chapter 3, verse 16. So far, if, if you looked at this passage, and you could do it later or now, but most of the passage is a first-person divine address, so the Lord speaking to the people. But then in verse 16, the perspective shifts, and we move into a third-person report, so to speak, of what happens when the people who hear this message uh, hear it. What do they do? Whenever something like this happens in the Bible, it's really important, right? Narration shifts or perspective shifts, really important. And what happens here is that we're getting kind of a model of the ideal hearers of the text. The, the, the book pauses to let us know what should you do and whom should you be when you hear this passage. Verse 16 goes like this. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. And goes on to recount the Lord's promises to be with these people, to claim them for himself. So the fear of the Lord. What, what's the fear of the Lord? Well, the fear of the Lord is not uh, most basically about being afraid of God. That is totally to miss it. It's so much more profound and deep than that. Um, the fear of the Lord is about being rightly related to God. One biblical scholar uses the language of humble responsiveness, which I just love. Now, the fear of the Lord that this passage is calling us to imbibe is a, a posture of being alert and alive, sort of in the depths of your being, to who God is in all of his glory and grandeur and majesty. And this is what we always need, right? We always need to be reminded of who God really is. That's what this vision of hope does for us. God is not, um, as we often treat him, an omnipotent taskmaster who's exploiting us for his own purposes. He's not a heavenly vending machine waiting for us to do our part so that he can give us something in return. He's our Father. He's the one who made us in his image, who redeemed us in the death of his Son, and who has sealed us with the gift of his Holy Spirit to protect and preserve us for that final day. Um, this, this vision of hope shows us that God has really nothing at all to gain from us and everything to give to us. That's what the point of this, this new vision of hope is. That's the generosity which really unlocks our hearts and beckons us into this, this humble responsiveness and tender-hearted obedience to the commands of God and to the task of spiritual renewal. Um, so uh, what we do is we come together as God's family, just like these people came together, and we talk with one another, just like they talked with one another, and we spur one another on to keep going, to persevere, in the, in the fear of the Lord, to hold on to the hope that we have. Like Sam and Frodo, right? We tell each other stories of how wonderful it's going to be someday when the Lord returns. And by God's grace, we find that this hope-fueled hope fear of the Lord actually makes all the difference as we press further into new seasons of spiritual renewal, new areas of obedience to the Lord. For example, as you seek renewal in your relationship with your possessions— this hope frees you from the fear-filled quest to optimize your short and fragile life on this earth, to try to maximize the, uh, the payoff and try to get all the experiences, all the rewards that you can get and minimize the cost. You don't need to get the most out of life, so to speak, when the Lord and giver of life has made his dwelling in you and promised to carry you all the way to the end of history. As Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What more can you ask for? As you seek renewal in your relationships with other people, 
marriage or friendships or family relationships. This hope helps you to take your eyes off of, uh, we could say, the relational payoff and keep them fixed on God, right? Helps you to, helps you to risk loving people when you don't know how they're going to respond, don't know if they're going to love you back because uh, you know that God in all of his gleaming purity is really, really what you're doing is you're, you're becoming more like God. The fear of the Lord gives us the emotional security to risk loving other people. Again, as Jesus taught, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And finally, as you seek renewal in your relationship with God, this hope frees you from the, the painful and often exhausting search for uh, the right kind of spiritual experience. Like, it's such a good thing for us to want uh, a life with real felt communion with God, but it can be such high-pressure environment to try to get your spiritual life into the right state. God has promised us an eternity of joy in His presence. And so the pressure's off. In the meantime, we can learn little by little to really just enjoy being with God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The, the work of spiritual renewal, I hope this has come across, remains utterly necessary in the Christian life. We need to always be going back to the basics, always getting a new start on the, the, the call to love the Lord, to fear the Lord, to follow the Lord in every area of our life. But when we understand the gospel of hope, spiritual renewal ceases to be a kind of a moral crowbar by which we're trying to pull our life out of the mess we've made of it. Instead, this glorious future day of the Lord comes to us as a gift a gift from our Father who loves us, a gift that's bought at the price of Jesus' blood. The great qualification, after all, for membership in the people of God, in the kingdom of God, isn't anything that you or I bring to the table. It's not our spiritual labors or moral efforts or gleaming virtue or courageous self-denial. It's Christ himself, uh, the God who has come to be with us. So as we do every week, I invite you by faith to come to Christ, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross and despised the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God. This is the Jesus who will, who will lead you on all your pilgrim paths through all your sins and sufferings, through all the deepest days of darkness, even to the final day when you and I will frolic like calves in a world made new, finally and fully alive. That's our hope, and that is what we set our hearts on. So please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that you give us. We thank you that you are the God of hope and that we call on you, asking you to renew our hope. Please open the eyes of our hearts by your spirit to see your grace, your generosity and goodness, your love in the things you promised to us in the return of your Son, and the, the kingdom of glory that awaits us. And we pray that you would work into us a reverent awe and gratitude, the fear of the Lord, so that we can keep going, listening to your voice and following your word in the costly but glorious work of renewal, obedience. Keep us in your love and move us along, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.